0: This
1: is in conversation from Network Reorient in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. We aim to explore the post Western, reconnect the Islamosphere. In this episode, I'm speaks with Ben Whittem and Nadia Ali on their recently published paper Racialized Capitalism, Islamophobia and Austerity.
2: Hi, and welcome to the next episode of the Network Reorient podcast, part of the Critical Muslim Studies um, Project. Today I'm joined by uh, Ben with him and Nadia Ali, um, who will be talking to us today about their paper, Racial Capitalism, Islamophobia and Austerity. So I thought we could begin with some introductions. My name is Dr. Amina Isat Das. I specialise in the study of Islamophobia, particularly gendered Islamophobia and politics. Um, if you'd like to introduce yourselves, um, Nadia.
0: Uh, I'm uh, higher. Uh, thank, uh, thanks for that, Amina. I'm a lecturer in international relations um, at the University of Sussex, and I, I guess my research specialism centre on um, the war on terror and the UK's prevent strategy and the governance of uh, British Muslim populations uh, through uh, through UK counterterrorism. I'm increasingly looking at issues of border politics and citizenship as well. Thank you, Ben.
1: Uh, And I'm Ben Whittem. I'm a senior lecturer in international politics at De Montfort University, uh, where I'm also a member of the Centre for Urban Research on Austerity. Um, And my research uh, is focused on international relations, in particular kind of uh, international security and insecurity, and uh, and how that's produced in various kind of national contexts um, through cultural politics in particular.
2: Super, thanks. So um, today we're going to discuss your recently published paper, Racial Capitalism, Islamophobia and Austerity, which was funded by Cura, the Centre for Urban Research and Austerity, um, which is a research centre we're both part of at De Montfort University. And we'll link to the paper in the um, description of the podcast. Um but one of the really novel things that came out of your paper is you posit this intersection of Islamophobic racism with um, austerity. and You define it as austerity Islamophobia. So if you could just give us a bit of a background and really your rationale, what was the reasoning behind wanting to study this particular area of inqui- inquiry?
1: So the, we, we had um, collaborated previously on a, on a project looking at media and political discourse uh, around British Muslims and kind of, I guess, what culminated in uh, in this kind of the construction of a so-called Muslim problem. You might remember the the Trevor Kavanagh uh, headline in The Sun um, and story in The Sun that was later altered um, in which he talked about a kind of Muslim problem. And this was the culmination of a, a long series of media and political strategies for demonising British Muslims across a whole range of different uh, issue areas, I suppose. And what we were interested in is scholars coming from international relations where there was work on Islamophobia, but it was largely focused on uh, the suspect communities thesis and on uh, the governance of risk uh, as a kind of um, set of theoretical ideas and uh, um, and really on broadly speaking, the idea of security and securitization. Um, and, and the kinds of the key one of the key things that cuts across all of the discipline of international relations, if you like. And what we felt in that article was that, or well, the reason that we we wrote that article, the research we did for that previous article, which was called "The Unbearable Anxiety of Being," um, was uh, that we could see that British Muslims were actually being demonised across a range of issues that exceeded that security framing. Um, so we looked at things like the. Uh, The so-called Halal Secret of Pizza Express, quite another sudden headline, Um, the idea that there was an Islamification of British food, um, basically, and alongside um, the so-called Trojan Horse Plot in Birmingham schools and uh, the discourse on grooming gangs. Um, And we looked at the idea that essentially there's a kind of set of fantasies around British Muslims being a sort of um, obstruction to the achievement of a kind of cohesive national selfhood to draw on the the language of kind of uh, Moran Mandelbaum, I think, and and, uh, and some of the kind of theorists that we looked at. So we drew quite a lot on psychoanalytic theory um, and and constructed a sort of, I suppose, a psychosocial argument around the idea that British Muslims have been made to serve a function, uh, which is to, I guess to kind of not just distract from, but really be blamed for all of the kind of, or many of the kind of key underlying tensions, antagonisms that are actually uh, just endemic in British society and culture. Um, and one of the things that we touched on in that article towards the end was uh, was the kind of economic um, discord and antagonism and, and tension that resulted from the global financial crisis, from uh, austerity, um, and that had then led to, uh, in the view of at least uh, of many people, to the Brexit referendum uh, going in the way that that did, um, or even taking place at all. So we kind of touched on at the very end of that article this idea that there might be more work to be done on the sort of political economy of Islamophobia, if you like. How does how do economic um, policies and practices intersect with uh, this kind of trend in? Um, in rising Islamophobia through that, that's been co-extensive with austerity in that same period, 2010s, essentially the last decade. Um, we have these kind of twin trends of rising Islamophobia, and there's lots of measures that will, that will show you how it's risen over those years, um, including particular spikes uh, around the Brexit referendum, um, around the Manchester Arena bombing, uh, and so on. But that basically that decade saw a, a huge kind of increase in uh, and perhaps normalisation of Islamophobic racism, and it also saw all these uh, austerity cuts being made.
0: Yeah, I think it, the austerity angle was really important to the paper. Just the, um, the ongoing context of British politics at the moment—so much of it was is refracted through that, um, through austerity. And so I think when we came to think about Islamophobia through a kind of political economy perspective, it was, you couldn't have that conversation in the UK without talking about austerity. And if you think about, for example, Gargi Bhattacharya's work on austerity, she talks about it in terms of the way in which um, austerity operates by, through disentitlement. So making decisions around which kinds of citizens or non-citizens or Britain is a multi-status Place so there's lots of different types of residents who live here, from citizens, including everything, including um, kind of irregular migrants. So her work looks at the way in which disentitlement is uh, is framed, and has very concrete policy um, implications. So we picked her up on this idea of disentitlement and austerity as a form of disentitlement for making decisions as who, as to who can have public resources and who can't so and we thought that there was a really strong and yet underexplored link between Islamophobia as a way of thinking about and framing Muslim populations and then arguments around um, so-called benefit scroungers, um, breeders, all all the kinds of things that actually organically came up in the interviews unprompted um, and that we could explore in more detail in the article. Mm -hmm. So that was the kind of logic and framing of the paper.
2: Absolutely. And I think the ideas that you're raising and and the relationship to the 2010s I think that they're very much reflected across Europe. So I am minded to, to recall a, a piece of work that we did at the University of Leeds and we documented as part of the project the best practices in countering Islamophobia. The initial phase of the research was countering these dominant Islamophobic narratives. And I, I feel that you mentioned so many of them um, that we found across the continent. Um, the idea of this demographic takeover, the Muslim breeders narrative, um, but also this undeserving poor narrative these scroungers Um, so yeah absolutely i think totally relevant in the uk case but definitely something that we might see um replicated across the continent so in terms of studying this how did you so it's an empirical piece of work that you did how did you go about um what were the sort of methodological um framings here
1: i think that i mean i would say that it's it's um i guess our view is that it was And the the argument that we kind of make for the contribution of this paper um, in the article is that it's both a theoretical and an empirical um, kind of project. And the article is split about 50-50 probably between uh, kind of a a theoretical framework and then an analysis of the findings from uh, the interviews and focus groups that we carried out. And that theoretical framework, I think... It's um, it's quite detailed in a sense, quite nuanced, but really there's just two core ideas underpinning it which are those of racial capitalism, uh, the kind of theory of racial capitalism, especially as it was articulated by Cedric Robinson um, and the uh, and the concept of intersectionality um, that was obviously coined uh, just over 30 years ago now by Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, so we we use those two kind of, Ideas and elaborate those two ideas in some detail uh, to try and connect them up to the the analysis that we then conduct of the lived experiences of British Muslims that we interviewed for the project. So, um, the very broadly speaking, I guess the the, the theory of racial capitalism um, at work in in the work of people like Oliver Cromwell Cox or Cedric Robinson is uh, is that capitalism has always intersected with racism, has always um, been constituted by racism. Uh, So, uh, for example, Robinson points out that, you know, uh, in, in his, probably his most famous work, Black Marxism is certainly his most famous early work from the early 1980s, Um, which is partly really a critique of Marxism uh, as a theory. One of his kind of key criticisms is that for Marxists, traditionally slavery, for example, was considered a kind of pre-capitalist, primitive accumulation style uh, strategy of accumulation. Um, Whereas, as Robinson points out, the the simple historical facts show that slavery coexisted with capitalism for at least 300 years um, and in fact was absolutely central to and constitutive of the development of capitalism, um, and coloniality and post-coloniality are, are we, we might understand, as equally um, generative of capitalism and, and in uh, you know, absolutely enmeshed with it. So we kind of took that idea and then Crenshaw's idea that essentially race, class, gender, and other forms of structural oppression and, and inequality Um, are mutually constitutive and kind of overlapping uh, of one another um, and and try to apply that to understanding uh, the the lived experience of uh, British Muslims. And we then went on to carry out these uh, interviews and uh, and a focus group to, to... in order to produce this kind of analysis where we might be able to show, highlight any of those connections between kind of race, gender, class, um, and the kind of broader political economy of austerity, capitalism, um, and Muslimness, if you like, to use the kind of terminology that's uh, that, that we've used in the paper and that was uh, most recently used in the APPG uh, definition of
0: Islamophobia. Yeah, I think um, the stuff around austerity, so you couldn't really... Think about logics of disentitlement without thinking about uh, the way that that intersects with uh, racism, and then the, those very particular histories of the racialized poor. So one of the the key works that we found really incredibly useful was Robbie Shilliam's Race and the Undeserving Poor, and so that I think led us towards looking at and engaging with in a more meaningful way the ways in which British kind of colonial mm. and imperial histories are really important to questions of, to contemporary questions of who gets what or who is entitled to what. Um, And so, yeah, that was, that was why that, the racial capitalism literature was really productive for us um, in, in what we were exploring. And obviously, intersectionality, but I always have this remembrance of doing the focus group interview. And it was quite a big focus group. And it was all women and what I found really striking about it was that when they were making sense of their experiences in relation to each other there it was intersectionality they were thinking about in a completely intersectional way it was utterly organic you know you wouldn't even had to use that phrase or the theoretical framework it just came out of how they were experiencing and living their everyday lives which to me was a really powerful reminder of where in. Intersectional thinking has come from, which is queer black feminists and has a, a, a history that, you know, predates K- Kimberly Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. But for us, to me, it was really useful to be reminded of um, this is just how people talk about their experiences. You know, when we think of the broader debates that some white feminists, for example, have about intersectionality as, as something that's wordy and theoretical, which is absolute yeah. nonsense because. That is neither the history of intersectionality nor the way that it's kind of deployed by people uh, in, in research at the moment. Yeah. And there was, there was, we
1: cited in the article uh, um, uh, a kind of quote from uh, an interview that I think the New York Times did with Crenshaw in twenty fifteen, where she described intersectionality as being a lived experience before it was a concept or before it was a term. Um, and and I think that's which speaks not only to the fact that obviously there are other black feminists, people like bell hooks writing uh, about inter- the intersectionality precisely of race, class and gender, um, you know, a, a long, fairly long time before uh, Crenshaw was, and for that matter, you might go back to Sojourner Truth and, and, and so on in a much longer history of, um, of kind of black feminist thought. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think the reason methodologically then we approach the work in terms of Carrying out interviews with people who had been exposed to what they felt was Islamophobic abuse or discrimination was because if you want to understand uh, intersecting structural inequalities, and we know through the theory, the, the kind of theorization of intersectionality, the conceptualization of intersectionality, which emerged as a concept and a theory from lived experience, as Crenshaw put it. Um, that lived experience is, is going to be the best kind of access point for understanding uh, the dynamics of this. Um, and there's a tendency in the in the literature on Islamophobia, I think, sometimes um, to focus more at the kind of the macro level, if you like, or at the kind of higher level, at how Islamophobic discourse is produced in media, how it's produced in politics, without really... Uh, getting to grips always with how it's received and how it shapes the lived experiences of of the people who are affected
2: by it. I agree I think that that's something I encounter within my own work um, with Muslim women who participate in politics that and that quote by Crenshaw also came to my mind as you were as you were discussing this that that it's something that happens before it that before it was theorized right intersectionality is something that's happening and I think absolutely then it's borne out in the the kind of lived experiences, and also then it, that it makes sense in the empirical approaches that one might take in in studying gendered Muslimness, and and the you were talking about the sort of the macro analysis within Islamophobia studies. I think even on the the sort of political discourse level and, and legislation, a lot of that happens without any consideration of the the lived experiences. Muslim women's voices aren't present in the. The, the debates around their visible presence in society. I'm thinking of Switzerland, who's just enacted the the niqab ban. Where where were the Muslim women in this? How many how many Muslim women even wore niqab? Was it even a relevant point? I know in Belgium when they implemented their niqab ban, there were sort of estimates of around thirty women in the whole of the I country. Think it's
0: similar in Switzerland, though, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. I think this goes back to some of the claims that we made in the um, unbearable anxiety of being paper, which is that these kind of fantasies and anxieties and that legislative responses to them are not grounded in realities. They're grounded in in precisely those discourses, fantasies, ways of thinking and talking about Muslims that actually have very little to do with the real lived lives of Muslim populations within these states. Um, yeah, I think that's what it always makes me think. And it's exactly the same in Switzerland, United you know, States, mm. they're talking about 30 women. And actually, what we're talking about when we talk about a ban is the further exclusion of Muslim women from public spaces. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: And people seem to be really comfortable with doing that.
2: Absolutely. It's that normalisation we were talking about right at the beginning of this chat. So in terms of the primary finding that's Findings that have come out of this research and the paper, um, gender is definitely one of them. But did you want to expand on this sort of key uh, findings you, you you encountered? Do you want to talk about austerity and
0: gentrification? Because I'm happy
1: to talk about misogyny as i Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd and I'd from the, the, uh, I would say probably the I guess we in in the um, in the article we have a sort of epigraph at the beginning of the article because. Um, I think when we were when we were thinking through how is this kind of political economy of Islamophobia realised uh, through processes of racialization, through gendered Islamophobia, like how is this kind of intersectional picture um, structured? Uh, we we found these kind of quotes that we put we placed in the epigraph to the article really helpful for thinking about. Um, I guess, the broad kind of network of, or webs of significance to use Gits as language that we've kind of cited in there, um, of Islamophobia in Britain today. Um, so the, the, we have four quotes in the autograph. The first one from a research participant in May 2018, uh, who said to us uh, in an interview that a guy called my wife a letterbox because she wears the niqab. And then we have a quote from at the time, uh, he was just the former foreign secretary um, and former mayor of London, although he's now obviously our prime minister, Boris Johnson, uh, saying in a Telegraph article in August, a few months after our interview, uh, it's absolutely ridiculous that people should choose to go around looking like letterboxes. If a constituency came to my MP surgery with her face obscured, I should feel fully entitled to ask her to remove it. Um, and then a, a second pairing of quotes, which are, Uh, Another one from a research participant in May 2018 who said, And a bunch of drunks came by and started shouting at my wife, calling her a ninja, calling her the N-word, calling her, they're both N-words, but the other N-word. And then a um, a quote from uh, the video of a Grenfell Tower effigy burning that emerged in November that year, so a few months later in November 2018, where one person is heard saying, during the the burning of this effigy, which has kind of uh, figures painted at the windows uh, in Niqab, um, saying, look at all the little ninjas getting it at the minute. Uh, And a second person says, that's what happens when they don't pay their rent. And then you can hear uh, all of the men in this video laughing as they watch the uh, effigy burn. So I think we felt that those were really useful for thinking about connecting up um, the kind of I guess the high-level political discourse, uh, so, for example, the discourse emerging from someone like Boris Johnson, um, with the very everyday lived experiences of British Muslims, um, and, the, uh, and connecting up the kind of, through the Grenfell Tower, effigy burning particularly, the, this idea of the undeserving poor and kind of austerity uh, with uh, Islamophobia. So that kind of racialization. Of, uh, of Muslim women connected in particular because racialization uh, you know is not just is obviously not just about skin color it's also about things like clothing it's also about things like names and all this this whole kind of array of cultural signifiers that are associated with this social construction of race um, and so the idea that the niqab is uh, a kind of key feature in the racialization of Muslim women by majority white populations in Europe, which lead to those kind of ridiculous rules, rulings on the wearing of niqab, even in countries where perhaps only a dozen, a couple of dozen women do wear niqab, it's really not a social issue. Uh, it shows how central it is to that kind of racialization. So when these Grenfell effigy burners are celebrating burning images of uh, of um, women in the car, or young women or girls in the car. Um, and I'm, I expect Nadia will come back to that when she talks about the kind of uh, Islamophobic misogynoir and, and so on. But um, I think the the issue here is that, and when they the, the response from one of the other people in the video is that's what happens when they don't pay their rent, is that there's this kind of incoherent general narrative uh, underpinning the kind of islamophobic racism in connection with austerity which is essentially that there are these populations of muslims who are at once threatening um as we outlined in our previous paper at once conspiratorial and some sort of fifth column um and on the other hand uh, are sort of um or, or as part of that are somehow kind of uh, leeching from the welfare system of the state, um, and uh, and don't have or shouldn't have a right to uh, to live in uh, in the society, um, and that they are seen as somehow, you know, the. The don't pay their rent comment seems to be kind of apropos of nothing. There's there's no uh, there's no basis for, for for this statement. It's just there's a logic that underpins that, which is uh, these people, who this racialised minority, essentially, um, are undeserving of, uh, of of a kind of economic life in the UK. So, yeah, in terms of the broader findings, that was just the, the, those kind of kind of key quotes from the from the epigraph, which I think really do help to frame. The findings that we present in the um, in the article, but in terms of the uh, the findings on, um, more broadly on sort of austerity, I guess, I'll just mention uh, perhaps one or two things, which were we talked about um, the everyday. So there's been, in, in the study of political economy in this same period, this last decade, so the 2010s, there, there's been a... a, a you know, we talk a lot about turns in, uh, I mean, international relations particularly is, is riven with turns, alleged turns, but, uh, you know, so there's, you know, like the the practice turn, the, you know, whatever. We, we, we have a kind of endless sequence of turns and in IPE, Uh, the study of international political economy, 2010 saw uh, a big turn, um, which was called the everyday turn, and that coincided with austerity, with that period of austerity, Uh, and that's not an accident. I think that the the everyday turn in IPE um, spoke to the fact that the experience of austerity uh, was something that, A, was very targeted, and so uh, was really certain populations who were going to experience austerity, and we've seen lots of evidence of this. Um, So, for example, the uh, Women's Budget Group and Runnymede Trust report a few years ago on intersecting inequalities, which showed how uh, BAME women had, uh, in particular, um, and people with disabilities in particular, had suffered from austerity more than uh, white and uh, middle class and and so on people. So, we know that it's had a very different. It, it had a very uneven and differential sort of set of effects, um, and that some populations were more more affected than others. So, to try and understand austerity as a kind of program, um, a set of policies, practices and politics um, from the perspective of a kind of top down traditional international political economy that's all, you know, quite a high level uh, is not very productive. Um, And so a lot of the most I guess, groundbreaking work on austerity in, uh, in the last decade has looked at it through lived experience. Sarah Marie Hall is a good example of somebody who's been very interested in austerity as what she calls a, a very personal crisis in an article that she published in 2019. Um, it's something that's experienced in a really intimate way in, some, in the lives of some people um, and not in the lives of others. So we, the, the kind of first of the three parts of our findings are looking at the kind of parallels between everyday experiences, lived experiences of Islamophobia, and everyday lived experiences of austerity, and not just the parallels, but in some ways the kind of mutual constitution and the, and the direct connection between everyday Islamophobia and everyday austerity. Um, and that's the kind of argument that we develop in the, uh, in the first part of um, of. Uh, the way that we present our findings um, is that the kind of, I think the way we say it is that the political economic transformation of the UK under the sign of austerity demands that people find new ways to navigate, explain and understand their everyday experiences of political economy. Islamophobia is realised like all racisms at the level of both structural or systemic forms of discrimination and targeting and the direct racist words and acts of individuals and groups with the latter enabled by the former. And in austerity Britain, structural racism has been central to the contextualising of the white majority's lived experiences of a radically changed political economy. In other words, everyday Islamophobia is constitutive of everyday austerity. So the argument that we're trying to make here is not that Islamophobia in the austerity period has been a kind of epiphenomenon or effect of, uh, of austerity policies, but rather that austerity has been kind of constituted through uh, Islamophobia to the extent that the white majority, uh, to some degree, is socialized into a belief that Muslims are part of the economic problem, um, and, uh, and that that's that justification itself. Is how austerity is is made partly. So it's not a simple causal relationship, um, as is sometimes mooted around kind of uh, forms of racism uh, versus class problems and uh, and capitalist economics. Um, it's not the case that it's uh, something that's kind of residual or follows after. Um, austerity capitalism but rather it's central to its constitution um so and we the the way that we explore that in the findings is through um you know in the article we, we use lots of quotes from our interviewees and focus group members talking about their very everyday experiences um and uh, and the kinds of environments that they experience everyday islamophobia in whether it's from i mean public transport features frequently i think it's featured frequently in pretty much every study of islamophobia looking at lived experiences um, particularly in urban uh, environments, people on trains, people on buses, um, being very directly kind of abused. But there's also, um, you know, some of our participants talked about the political. So Boris Johnson was raised, for example, during the focus group um, as as an example of what one of the focus group participants referred to as a, a form of trickle down uh, racist
0: Islamophobia. Um, his name came up a lot mm-hmm. in the interviews, repeatedly, and in lots of different ways. It was quite surprised. striking. Actually, I'm not yeah. surprised. I guess at the time
2: he was was commentating, and his column was shortly after, was it, or just but it was around that time you were conducting the interviews. I think. I think yeah, it was, uh, it was in August,
1: August 2018. So we were in the in the middle of the project, and we had just interviewed uh, a, a few people. As I said, when it, in relation to the kind of quotes in the epigraph, we had a participant talk about that term being used, letterbox, in relation to uh, his nikabi wife. Um, a few about three months, four months before Boris Johnson used it, and this is what I mean again. About we're not saying hear that boris johnson for example sets in motion a discourse on uh on um you know a racist islamophobic discourse using this term letterboxes but rather that he's drawing on something that he understands he's drawing yeah. on which is a pre-existing discourse mm-hmm. about the, that is about racializing muslim women through the clothing that they wear it? and exactly yeah. yeah amplifying it and normalizing it um Absolutely. and kind of uh, and showing, and the, the normalisation in that case was was pretty thoroughgoing because there was a, a violent reaction. In a sense, socially, there was initially he had reporters camped out on his lawn for days, waiting for the apology that I think many people believe would be inevitable He, You know, even for Boris Johnson, with all of his record of uh, of kind of comments at that point, this was back in 2018. People thought an apology would probably be forthcoming. in The press, when they can smell blood, you know, they, they were pretty sure they'd be able to get an apology if they just went and camped out there. But you'll remember there was those images of him bringing cups of tea out to the reporters, um... And actually, I think those kind of images and that moment became central, became pivotal in uh, in his pathway to uh, to being the leader of the Conservative Party and the Prime Minister, um, because at that point he was he was neither of those things. He was just the ex Foreign Secretary, ex uh, Mayor of London. So, um, yeah, I think uh, that was it, it's. Uh, yeah, it's the, the the kind of way around that it works is not as simple as sort of that he's triggered something, but rather that he is consciously drawing on a racist discourse that he knows to be racist. The last thing I'll say, and then I'll pass over to Nadia to talk about the uh, gendered kind of dimensions of it, um, was that the the second part of our findings was to look at austerity, well, um, what's being called in, in the literature by people like uh, Loretta Lees, for example, austerity gentrification, mm-hmm. um, which is to say that even during this decade... This decade of austerity, the decade that followed the global financial crisis in which we saw these deep cuts to public spending, we saw the closure of public services, huge cuts to local authority budgets um, in the UK, but also beyond. And actually Loretta, lees and, and others looking at austerity gentrification are talking about contexts in southern Europe, in Greece um, and, and elsewhere. Uh, what we managed to see, even during that period of intense cuts, was uh, intensive gen- gentrification in some cities, um, and London was certainly one of those cities. There was there was no um, you know no let up in the process of uh, of gentrification uh, in London, which was where we were carrying out our interviews. Uh, we were speaking to people mo- for the most part who uh, lived in and around East London, um, and they described to us a kind of process during the 2010s of I guess, as living costs spiraled, you know, we had a cost of living crisis, wages stagnated, uh, but the cost of living increased. Um, And in London, in particular, that became really, really uh, a very sharp um, kind of trend. So people were pushed out. And what was traditionally um, a very diverse uh, kind of multi-ethnic set of boroughs in, uh, in East London became increasingly white and increasingly middle class. And our, uh, our interviewees talked at length about their experiences of the transformation of boroughs like Tower Hamlets and, uh, and Waltham Forest and, uh, and Newham and Hackney and, and so on, in terms of uh, their kind of whitening and, uh, and becoming more middle class, uh, and in terms of, uh, as some of them put it, the, the, the kind of white hipster, uh, mm-hmm. you know, upper middle class people who are moving into the area don't integrate. Um, you know, they don't integrate with the, with the Muslim families that already live there. They don't, they don't integrate with the black and Asian uh, families that live in the neighborhood. And at the same time, they push up the rents and, uh, and price them out. So then they talked about being forced to leave. Uh, east London and move to the kind of furthest reaches of London where they would experience even more intense forms of Islamophobic abuse, discrimination, hostility, um, a generally more hostile environment in some of those boroughs on the outskirts or even outside of London. Mm. Um, so yeah, those were the, the kind of the first two. And then the third section of findings is on um, Yeah, I just
0: want to pick up on um, one of the interviews we did Uh, where gentrification came up and one of the interviewees the way she put it it was really I remember it was really striking to me that I thought about it a lot afterwards and she talked about in terms of um, gentrification like Saturdays in Dalston there's just a different vibe you know you've got these the same type of white person in Dalston walking around in their flocks yes, we have this influx of white people and they come in because these areas are so diverse and it's appealing to them in that sense. But yet when they get here, what are they actually doing? Any mixing or are they just sliding past each other? And that thing of sliding past each other was really interesting to me because um, that's just a thing that you can feel that you've done or that has been done to you. Like the, And you could see, you know... So these interviews took place in East London so... You know, I went there, I walked around, I was in the area, I was talking to people and you could feel what was being said was embodied. It was being lived out, you know, out on the streets of East London. And I thought that that was really interesting and also quite depressing because Mm -hmm. at one point, one of the interviews described the Curve Garden in Dalston where, you know, she would go and hang out with her mates but she couldn't do that anymore because she felt like it wasn't really a space for them anymore. And so that whitening happens at lots of different levels, not just the materiality of being priced out, but also feeling like places that were yours are no longer yours because they're inhabited by a different kind of person doing different kinds of practices. Mm. Um, Okay, so I guess I'll talk about um, gender. Um, (laughs) I don't know how that happened, but yeah. Okay, so... um, (laughs) A lot of the things that we kind of covered in the paper were to do with um, the kind of colonial tro- tropes of breeding. And I think I want to just underline here the extent to which we engaged with the way that Islamophobic abuse itself is differential. It is experienced differentially among different Muslim populations because Muslim populations themselves are heterogeneous. And I think it's really important to note that we drew heavily on... The work of radical black thinkers and so we felt it was really important in the paper then to pay attention to and to honor basically that dimension of um of islamophobic violence because i i have a general kind of issue with the literature on islamophobia and that it doesn't attend to um to the way in which islamophobia is often coextensive with and feeds off pre-existing long-standing forms of racism like anti-black racism Mm -hmm. and this was I think what was really striking to me was how when different women spoke about often when they were in like if they were South Asian and their partner was black and they talked about the experiences of their children who might look uh, you know one child looks more like mum one child looks more like dad the way they experience racism is differentiated in that family and the fact that this family unit, you know, and there was many of them, had to navigate and manage different racial experiences mm-hmm. in the same household. And that this was something I had not considered prior to, um, you know, my ignorance and naivety prior to doing the interviews. And so we wanted to really put the focus on that as well in, in the paper. So I guess the kind of things that came out that we thought were important to to discuss was this idea of misogynoir, so the way in which colonial racism still feed into and are really constitutive of how Islamophobia is experienced at the moment. So one of the things, you know, obviously this is a trope you're familiar with as well, but it's the idea of breeding. And breeding was really important because it's the bridge between talking about Islamophobia and then austerity Mm -hmm. as a form of kind of racial and gendered disentitlement. So, you know, these people, they're here. They shouldn't even be here in the first place. You know, they're not white. They're they're immigrants and all this kind of stuff. And then they have too many children. Uh, They take too many welfare benefits. They live, they take our social housing. And these are tropes that I grew up hearing and I'm very familiar with. Um, But you could see that through this kind of war on terror... Uh, islamophobic context they're refracted in a slightly different way Mm. so one of the key things that we found that was particularly disturbing and and requires much more attention is the fact that muslim women experienced islamophobia when they were with their children and they would often describe their children as an aggravating factor Mm. so the presence of children would somehow incite people uh, in in different ways and i think so this week I've been thinking a lot about um, Shamima Begum mm-hmm. and her, um, you know, three children, like all British citizens who who died um, while she was in in, uh, in the in the camp in Syria, and I think that there's some there's a connection here that we need to think about more mm-hmm. systematically, which is the ways in which Muslim children and Muslim childhood is kind of taken, stolen, undermined. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you know how we can think about this. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting ways of thinking about it. But this is something that requires more work. Although we we kind of touched on it in the paper. So that was one key thing around breeding. Um, and the other was then, you know, whether you're a, a black Muslim or a South Asian Muslim, your experience of Islamophobia is really dependent on that. And, you know, the specific kind of words that people are going to use to describe you and to insult you, Um, whether you use the n-word or the p-word and these were really important distinctions again that I hadn't considered prior to doing the interviews but obviously were really central to the way that people experienced and remembered and were traumatized by you know whatever incidents they had um, they had experienced and so when we mapped that onto pre-existing inequalities in the UK around um, around issues of race and gender, and then particularly the really poor outcomes for many black populations in the UK, you can see that austerity really, no, sorry, Islamophobia really compounds and intensifies those, um, those trends. And so to be a racialized poor black woman with children is really uh, I don't want to say it's the worst place to be, but it's an incredibly challenging set of things to navigate. So we really wanted to pay attention to that and to make space for that in the paper. Because, yeah, like I said, I don't think that we do focus, the literature on Islamophobia does not, to my mind anyway, always engage with gender meaningfully enough Mm -hmm. and it certainly doesn't engage often with these different types or forms of racialization enough. Mm -hmm. So yeah, anti-black racism was a kind of um was a key thing that we wanted to we wanted to centre in the paper. And yeah, I guess I just want to kind of conclude by saying that people who are having these experiences have very sophisticated understandings of what's happening to them, what's happening to their families, what's happening to their children, their partners. And these are things they talk about all the time it's just a part of their everyday life and so mo- thinking into the future if we think about the kind of cognitive disconnect between different parts of the population so if you can live your life and it's the austerity doesn't affect you and you don't understand what it means to rely on public services or what it means to do the school run you know with your kids while you're wearing um, while you're wearing any car then you don't understand, you don't know. And yet there's a whole set of people living with these things, talking about them, thinking about them intimately and they are being erased. They're not adequately listened to or paid attention to. So for us, part of the the ethics of doing this research was, you know, because we we talked about it a lot. What does it mean for us as researchers in this privileged position to be interviewing people about their trauma and then using that trauma to do our research and submit mm-hmm. our papers to the ref? And mm-hmm. to me, there were so many moments where I was just like, is what I'm doing okay? It doesn't feel okay sometimes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I hope that one of the things we've been able to do then is um, give voice to
1: mm-hmm.
0: things that are routinely erased taken out um and yeah so for me the experiences of black muslim women in particular has been something that i think we will need to pay attention to uh, to in more detail mm-hmm. yeah.
2: yeah i agree the 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 intersecting sort of the the issues around ethnicity and race as well as the racialization of muslimness i think that you know these are multiple factors that we need to be mindful of and and I think even internally, there are these sorts of racisms that exist that we should also be aware of. And I think it's important, like you said, to think about the ethics of our research and our own positionality. Um, and I think as scholars of colour, it's easier or perhaps we're more likely to do that. Maybe it's something that needs to be broadened. As you were talking about the, the, the breeding narrative... Uh, um, I keep thinking of this image in, in my mind. It's the front cover of a, a Charlie Hebdo, which obviously then is that, that media thing we were talking about before. But it's got three um, hijab-wearing Muslim women with abayas, as the long dresses. And they have got a, They look rather angry. And they're all sort of black and brown. And they've got a speech bubble at the top. Don't touch our social welfare. Um, and I think that speaks to so much of what you were saying. These pregnant, headscarf-wearing long dress wearing women who are angrily proclaiming don't touch our benefits I think that's there's just that visual representation of of so much that you were talking about I think there's lots of work that we could continue to do and we need to do in terms of giving voice and 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 understanding and mapping the the phenomenon that that, that's clearly being lived every day by so many people in society Um, I don't know if you wanted to add anything on that
1: I guess on the, I would only add that that this kind of trope around breeding, which came up, um, and in some ways is is the, I think the reason we found it so important in terms of what our respondents said, was that thinking through what we were trying to, the, the aims of the project, which was to access this mutual constitutional connection at least between the political economy of austerity that emerged in the 2010s and the rising Islamophobia in the 2010s was that this kind of seemed to get at the very crux of that kind of connection. Um, and so, for example, we had a, um, uh, one participant who said, in my experience, it, talking about experiences of Islamophobia and kind of Islamophobic racism, um, he said, in, in my experience, the two things that they talk about the most is benefits and the fact that Muslims are having loads of kids. They're, this idea that they're just having kids to kill the benefits system and housing They'll be the two things that they go to first. That's just been in my experience. So, but I think what was particularly interesting and powerful about this was that it connects to a much like a much longer history of how disentitlement functions in uh, in and through kind of racism and political economy. Um, and dispossession, in fact, and it functions through those things because you can look right back uh, to we cite in the in the article a quote from Franz Fanon from The Wretched of the Earth, where he talks about the terms the settler uses when he mentions the native are zoological terms, um, and he speaks of uh, reptilian motions, the stink of the native quarter, and of breeding swarms. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of connect that up in the article, for example, to David Cameron's comment on swarms of migrants, but uh, which were also racialized as majority mm-hmm. racialized as Muslim. Um, so uh, th- this kind of idea of of like the the dehumanising colonial racism um, around breeding uh, that was applied to colonial to colonised populations, basically, mm-hmm. um, including uh, those that Fanon had in mind. Um, Continues today, in, in not only in the form of uh, some of that language around the so-called migrant crisis um, or refugee crisis, uh, but also in these lived experiences at a very kind of micro level of, uh, of a very everyday kind of Islamophobia. Is that there's this framing of uh, of what are um, yeah in the words of, of Robbie Shilliam and and, uh, and Gargi Batschario and others are uh, the, the undeserving poor. Um, people who are racialized as being not deserving of uh, of any stake, really, in the in the public good and the kind of uh, economic good, I suppose, the shared uh, economic resources
0: that we have. Yeah, I think also it's really important to note that the logics of disentitlement they come for everyone. Mm-hmm. So while mm-hmm. they might start with particular and austerity as a kind of project, and we think about George Osborne in his early days, you know, this was specifically about targeting the the most vulnerable and the people least likely to react or organise or resist um, Mm. some of this violence. Uh, Ultimately, the people who are left then who are deserving and entitled are so few Mm -hmm. that, and this is this is actually just broadly the function of racism, I think, or one of the key functions of racism is that everybody loses. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just some people lose first and worse. Mm-hmm. And eventually it will come for you as well. So, yeah. you know, I'm just thinking back to there's an article or a bit of research, I think, like last that came out last week that found that, you know, uh, the majority of the British public think that people who lost their jobs in the pandemic deserve to lose their jobs. And that's wild, isn't it? Because, <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, to me on so many levels in ways that I can't even. But I think actually that's we can somehow trace that also back to the logics that mm-hmm. austerity compounded. That was a pre-existing logic, the idea of, you know, you work hard, we live in a meritocracy, you mm-hmm. can do well, which is, of course, uh, a fiction. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so it was interesting to see. Mm. So if that's what the majority of the British, British public think, well, good luck to the people on, you know, who might find themselves on the wrong side of that logic who, mm-hmm. who think that that's, you know, that that's true, like it was therefore, they lost their job.
1: Generation. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of race to the bottom um, mm. discourse, really, and uh, and it's it's one that doesn't seem sustainable. Um, mm. I guess it's what it's what critics of capitalism uh, have always seen as its kind of internal contradictions, and mm. and what eventually, uh, you know, what makes it unsustainable as a system. It eats itself in a sense eventually because uh, of this targeting of, of populations that just goes on and on and on, and and. Uh, and eventually, it's it's further and further extended. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's something that we've kind of seen intensified over the over this last decade. And, uh, and obviously, um, yeah, this this is one of those trends, or I guess, or one of those trends.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can see it in the pandemic in so many ways as
2: well. Mm-hmm, definitely, I think that's intensified so much of, of of what we've seen before around austerity, around the racisms. Um, But, yeah, it's worrying stuff, I think. Um, But I guess looking to the future, looking forward, did you have any work in the pipeline that you wanted to share with our listeners?
0: Uh, Well, I am working incredibly slowly on my book project, which um, kind of draws on my PhD research on Prevent, but looks more broadly at the idea of racial bordering and the way in which... um, Prevent can be thought of as something that happens that happens simultaneously alongside the development of the hostile environment, and in fact made the hostile environment possible in these different ways through those precise logics of disentitlement around the racialized world that we that we've been kind of talking about. Um, yeah, I have a deadline. Uh, fingers crossed for me <laughs> that I meet that.
2: <laughs> Good luck with that one. That sounds great. We look forward to reading it. And Ben.
1: Um, yeah, there's, I guess the two things I've mentioned, one is, um, something that I've already, uh, well, there's something I've already written, which is, uh, forthcoming in a, in an edited volume that should be out, um, should be out later this year, let's hope, uh, um, on COVID-19 and kind of, uh, political and media discourse, um, around COVID-19 and in particular, uh, what I'm looking at in, in that paper is kind of the, um, I guess two discursive sort of uh, devices, which are the "keep calm and carry on" and uh, "and we're all in this together," um, which were both key themes of austerity. So that those those two phrases were uttered by uh, cabinet ministers in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis, and in particular by kind of George Osborne, David Cameron, um, in the early years of the uh, of the coalition government uh, that, that came to power following the crisis. So there were key themes of, uh, of kind of austerity, but they've both been revived in relation to the pandemic. Those two phrases have been used again and again, both again by politicians, but also by businesses and, and uh, you know, in kind of popular culture um, in all sorts of contexts. And, I, and I'm, what I'm interested in in that book chapter is looking at how these two ideas, which invoke um, a, a wartime mentality, among other things, and uh, a so-called kind of wartime spirit, are about um, reproducing a form of white nationhood uh, Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of reinforcing an idea of uh, of a sort of exclusive uh, white nation wherein the lives that have been lost to COVID-19 and in particular the disproportionate targeting of COVID-19 effects on people who are racialized as minorities, people with disabilities, um, that those are just kind of uh, necessary sacrifice and uh, and, um, in fact essential sacrifice as part of a kind of broader necropolitics and how they're kind of, to use Mabembe's term, but also how they're kind of realised as uh, as what Judith Butler calls ungrievable lives. Um, and so that's one thing. The other thing I should say is that we've, uh, at the end of this article um, that we've been discussing today, racial capitalism, Islamophobia and austerity, uh, we kind of suggest that future research, something that we would be interested in perhaps looking at further, um, is not just the political economy of Islamophobia, but uh, what Frank Wilderson and others call the the libidinal economy. Um, uh, So libidinal economy is kind of an old post-structuralist term, but it was picked up by by Wilderson and really developed um, as a way of thinking about anti-black racism and the kind of libidinal investments um, that people have in anti-black racism in the United States, in, in culture, um, in popular culture in the United States and so on. And it's an idea that's been developed um, significantly since then. But we were thinking it would be a useful way perhaps of connecting the themes of the, this, the two articles we've mentioned, the one from 2018 on the unbearable anxiety of being, and then this one from, uh, from 2020 uh, on racial capitalism and Islamophobia and austerity. Uh, so trying to explore kind of, yeah, what are the um, the sorts of, I guess, the forms of desire, fantasy and enjoyment that um, that are constitutive of these uh, Islamophobic racist narratives that we've seen proliferate in, in recent
0: years.
2: That sounds interesting. We look forward to it. But Thank you ever so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Um, and as I said, we'll link to this article um, in the podcast description so that you can all read it. But thank you once again.
0: Thanks for having us, Mina. Thanks. This is another episode of In Conversation,
1: brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.